Hello and welcome to the Highland Bridge Builders Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. My name is David Flatt, and today we're starting a new series entitled The Story, the Old Testament. Today, Scott's got our first lesson in the series entitled The Historical Books, Part 1. He'll cover the books in the Old Testament, Joshua through 2 Samuel. Our next lesson will be The Historical Books, Part 2, where Scott will teach on 1 Kings through Esther. And finally, we will have lessons on wisdom and poetry, followed by lessons on the prophetic books. Appreciate you guys joining us so much today, and I know that Scott's got a great lesson to teach, so hope you enjoy it, and as always, let us know if you're in the area and interested in visiting class, or if uh, you have any other questions that we can help with. Thanks so much, and I hope you enjoy this lesson. All right. Not that you need to hear more, but I will add on that um, I grew up here. And I remember like a handful of teachers in Sunday school or Wednesday night class. But ironically, one of the like top three that stands out in my mind, a guy named James, he was a Wednesday night teacher when I was in fourth grade and he was a law student at the University of Memphis. Definitely had no clue what he was doing. Had no idea how to manage a bunch of fourth graders. Clearly never taught before in his life. It was not the most powerful, impactful lessons of my life. But he stands out as like one of the three people I remember about growing up here because he invested and he was cool because he was younger and he spent time talking to us and getting to know us. So even if you have any reservations about, you know, volunteering every now and then down there, it's really, really not about the lesson that you bring. That'd be great. You know, it's a cool bonus, but it's more about investing in the lives and being that person that they talk to later. So there's my two cents. So. this is a tall task. We have five books of the Bible. It is 1023. Um, I will not go over, so we're going to make some cuts, but that's probably good because we're going to have to make cuts anyway. We're talking about a whole chunk of story. Uh, the way that this series is broken up, there's basically two weeks on the history books of the Old Testament. So uh, if you look at the Old Testament, there's one overarching story chronologically. Part one is in the book of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. So we did that recently. Uh, Then this is part two. And then there's a part three. But that's only about half of the Old Testament. The other half, uh, books of poetry or wisdom literature, prophets, uh, which while the prophets have some chronology, mostly it's prophecies. Uh, So in order to understand all the stuff that's going to happen in those last three lessons, we need to have a pretty good grasp on these first two kind of what's the big story and how do all these other things that happen later slot in. So quick refresher, right? We talked about the Torah or the books of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. We know that uh, God creates the world, all that stuff in the first 12 chapters, which could take us a while to work through, but then there's a promise to Abraham, and that's kind of the promise that sets the trajectory for the rest of the Old Testament, right? God tells Abraham, I'm gonna give you a great people, I'm gonna give you a great land, All people will be blessed through you, and people who curse you will be cursed. Kind of this big three-part promise we just studied in first and second grade a couple of weeks ago. So if you've got a first and second grader, you can talk to them about that. Um, And what happens is, by the end of the book of the law, we start to see the fulfillment of the people, right? We've gone from Abraham and his one to two kids, depending how we count poor Ishmael, right? To the 12 tribes, which then number in the hundreds and then the thousands each all enslaved in Egypt, being delivered from Egypt. And when Moses dies at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, 
We are almost at the completion of the second part, which is the great land. They're standing at the Jordan River. They're looking over into the promised land. Uh, Moses isn't allowed to go in for all the other reasons, right? Because he's made some mistakes. Uh, Everyone who left Egypt isn't really going in, except for Joshua and Caleb. But we're kind of on the verge of completing part two. And we'll complete part two fairly early in these set of books. And then the rest of it is kind of following that. I will bless you, bless all people through you. I will curse those who curse you. And the problem that we kind of see, it's somewhat cyclical, is this idea of Israelites straying away from God, coming back to God, straying away from God, coming back to God, just kind of back and forth and back and forth, um, which can seem a little bit repetitive, but is actually probably fairly truthfully representative of life in general, uh, of our relationship with God, um, although it's really fun to pick on them because it feels like the things that they do are just so dumb, um, but it's actually pretty similar to us. So uh, we'll jump right into that in just a second. But first, one of the things that I find most interesting about working with middle schoolers every day is observing the middle school trends because there is no period in your life You may not remember it, but you were like this, I promise. No period in your life where you are more concerned about what everybody else is wearing, saying, or doing than in middle school. There is zero interest by people in middle school of standing out in any way. Nobody wants to stand out. Every now and then you get this one kid who's like slightly more mature than the other middle schoolers who's in eighth grade and is ready for high school and they're starting to stand out and everyone just beats them down mercilessly. Like, why would you wear different shoes? Why are you sitting with someone else at lunch today? What's going on? Everyone is so in tune to doing exactly what everyone else is doing. No one wants to stand out in any way, uh, whether that means that they're all wearing the same shoes, currently Vans high tops, at my school at least, uh, whether that means you know what they do for fun, Fortnite, 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 right? Whatever that is, Even if people don't actually like those things, they're investing in those things in middle school. And so we see that, like, I see that super clearly every day. At the same time, though, that's not something that we've totally left behind, right? There's that whole keeping up with the Joneses thing, which we mention occasionally, and we pretend like it's not really true, but it is kind of true, right? The idea that we are still aware of what everyone else is doing. Um, Maybe we're not emulating it as immediately and emphatically as we might have in middle school, but we're still very concerned about it and aware of it, and it still animates at least our thoughts, if not our actions. And that idea of kind of wanting to be like other people, wanting the success of other people, wanting to maybe even enjoy life like we think other people are because of their position, that's the same mindset that we find the Israelites in for the bulk of this section, okay? More often than not, we look at a story and we hear them asking for something or demanding something from God or from a false God, depending on the setting, that is because other people have it. And at the time when you hear them say it, it sounds really dumb. Like you're talking to God and you're saying, I don't want what you're telling me I want. I want what these other people want. Um, So it seems somehow more unintelligent, right, that they're making this mistake. But I think what's important for us to kind of keep in our minds is that really uh, that's a very human impulse that's something that we still do even if it doesn't seem as direct in our minds as like looking up at god and saying hey i don't want to do this anymore i'd rather do what they're doing because they look like they're having fun or they have more money or more success or their family always seems so happy and mine we just fight all the time or whatever it is Um, so all that stands out so in the book of joshua uh by the way 
sorry, side note. I couldn't decide exactly how to do this when you're talking about five books. So I'm going to do some very broad survey. You could always go read them if you wanted to know more detail. There's some really gems of stories in here, but we just don't have time. So in the book of Joshua, the main point of Joshua is that uh, the Israelites are taking over the promised land. Moses has died. Joshua has been appointed by Moses and God to take over. So it's a pretty clear line of succession. There's nobody saying, should he really be in charge? Everyone's on board with this. So Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land and they militarily destroy it and take it over and begin settling. Um, you prop, right, we've got Joshua and Jericho, right? That's a pretty easy kindergarten story that hopefully you heard somewhere back then if you were in Sunday school. You know, they cross the Jordan River. Everywhere they go, they carry the Ark of the Covenant with them. And it's kind of a central part of all of their battles. Um, if you remember right from the Joshua and Jericho story, right, they send the Ark at the very front when they're marching around the walls. So through all of their battles, the Ark, which is kind of representing God's presence on earth, is right there front and center, okay? Whether it's uh, at Jericho or there's another battle a little later on where God makes the sun stand still so they have enough time to slaughter everybody and they don't run out of time. Uh, the Ark's front and center there also. Um, but then there's other stories where the Ark does not feature prominently and usually is a pretty distressing story for the Israelites. There's a battle at a small town called Ai uh, where the Israelites get their tails kicked because Joshua's like, oh yeah, it's a small town, we'll go get it. And they just attack without really planning ahead. They're not following the ark. They get destroyed. They have to go back. They pray for repentance. They re-communicate with God. God gives them a plan. They set a trap. They ambush the people of Ai and they have victory. In another example, there's a people from Gibeon and they trick Joshua. They show up and they dress themselves in really old clothes and they bring empty water uh, flasks to make it look like they've traveled a long way when really they're like around the corner. And they're like, we're from very far away, but we've heard of your greatness. We'd like to sign a peace treaty. And Joshua just signs it without asking God because he feels so confident in, in his position from that. Um, and so once again, the lack of a presence of God and the decision-making of Joshua leads to mistakes. Now, I don't think that's incredibly different from what we've seen in the first five books. When we look especially at the journey of Moses, right? Moses is a pretty good dude. He makes mistakes. When he makes a mistake, it's because he's either made a selfish decision or he's lacked consulting God on something. Uh, when he makes his own decision about what to do with the water from the rock, right? He makes a human mistake, maybe a selfish mistake, an overconfident mistake, whatever the case may be. Uh, and that kind of dooms everything. But when that focus on God and his presence is central to the Israelites, things are blessed things seem to go well. So in many ways, Joshua is kind of the outlier in this group because it really seems to fit more with those first five books, okay? This idea of God being present. They're marching around with the tabernacle. They're having uh, feasts and, and worship periods all the time. It's very focused identity-wise. But what happens towards the tail end of Joshua and then sets us up the rest of the way is that things start to fragment a little bit because as you kill everybody, right? There become less people to kill and you kind of go, well, now what? So everyone goes to their areas and they set up their houses and the tribes divvy up the land and they say, well, there's just a few people left. So we're going to let uh, this tribe take care of these people. We're going to let this tribe take care of these people and, and we'll be fine. We don't have to all work together anymore. Joshua kind of settles into retirement and the book kind of ends. Um, but what becomes problematic is that the Israelites don't wipe everybody out. 
The tribes that were charged with finishing it up don't. In fact, there's one pretty humorous example where one of the small groups that they're supposed to deal with is the Philistines. But the tribe that was supposed to go take out the Philistines was like, yeah, they're not a threat. We'll just chill. And of course, the Philistines end up being one of the big enemies of the whole rest of the Old Testament. They pop up all the time. Um, so it's kind of one of those, well, we should have followed instructions on that one. Um, but so when Joshua eventually dies and he leaves the people, there's not a clear structure of what should happen politically. Spiritually, there is. And you could argue that there is politically too, right? The, the precedent has been when God's presence is central, when the Ark of the Covenant is central, everything is fine. So as long as that remains the number one priority of the people, there's not going to be any issues. Uh, the problem is, without a big character, whether that's Moses or Joshua, to kind of remind people of that and kind of be God's messenger constantly that kind of represents that to the people, uh, they fall down and they struggle a whole lot more and in a whole lot more of embarrassing ways. Okay. So the next book, which is Judges, is my favorite book of the Bible full disclosure, wildly entertaining book, um, but it's also probably more represented, like I feel like I connect more as a human with what happens in Judges with the world today than any other book of the Bible. Judges is also the most depressing, like the Israelites do the worst stuff and the dumbest stuff, but it feels so correct. Because what happens in the book of Judges is there's no clear authority, right? There's no Joshua or Moses figure to look back to. We kind of lack that today, right? We've certainly got powerful, faithful people in our midst, but we don't have like a Joshua figure that we can go visit and be like, all right, how do we get the country back on track? How do we listen to God some more, right? We don't have that. Um, and so instead, in the book of Judges, it tells us this repeatedly. It says, in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit. I think that's really representative of now, right? Israel has no king and everyone does as they saw fit. Okay, Judges gives us a wildly crazy succession of stories. Start out rather calmer, and then they get ridiculous by the end. And all through Judges, it's a microcosm of this cycle that we mentioned earlier, right? Israelites are faithful, they get distracted and do something bad, God sends someone to conquer them or punish them or something, they cry, help us, God sends a deliverer, they get delivered, they start obeying again until they get distracted again, and then they disobey again, and then God sends someone to punish again, and then they cry out again, and then God... And as you're, if you can picture this, as you're going around in this circle, just kind of picture like a tornado too. So it's like it's going in a circle, but it also keeps going down, down, and the cycles get faster and faster, and eventually just thuds, uh, which is the end of Judges. So, um, but also some, so what happens when they cry to deliverance is God sends them a great person, right? Someone to deliver them from the punishment that they have received because of it. Um, these characters are also, I think, some of the more relatable in the Bible. They're not usually the ones we teach in Sunday school because they're really messed up. If we can say heroes, heroes, they're not really heroes, though. We've got a couple of standouts. Deborah's a pretty good person, right? Like, can't say too much bad about Deborah. But everyone else has pretty much got some pretty big flaws that they never necessarily get better about. So in some ways, I find the people in Judges who are attempting to lead, generally messing up while they do it, to be more like us today 
in our attempts to follow through. So in that sense, I think it's very relatable. So uh, we get some great stories, of course. Uh, Ehud, the left-handed judge who runs a fat king through with his sword, and the fat king is so fat that his belly eats the sword. Like, that's just a great story. Um, not much to say beyond that. Um, we've heard of Gideon, right? So he's got his, he has a whole bunch of men volunteer to help, and God says, that's too many. And then he cuts them. He says, that's too many. And he cuts them again, and he ends up with 300 men, and he goes and defeats this mighty army because of God's plan. Of course, after that, there's two more chapters on Gideon and him basically screwing up repeatedly and becoming a king and then being like, oh, no, I probably shouldn't be a king. And then his family gets killed. It's just messed up because he doesn't know what to do. Like, he's like, I'm not a leader. When God first approaches him, he's like, you have found the wrong guy. When he sends an angel to Gideon, he says, you must be looking for the wrong person. No one will listen to me. No one will follow me. He has no confidence. And then when he does win something and get some confidence, it's wildly misplaced, and he ends up on this crazy wrong trajectory. My favorite person in the Bible, Samson, just because he's entertaining, right? Does so many really cool, like, movie-type stuff, whether it's, like, beating someone or taking the jawbone of the donkey and whacking people around or whatever, but also, like, clearly one of the dumbest people it feels like right like every time he has a chance and he's and like how are you not figuring this out man how can you not be better god's given you this awesome thing and you just keep using it to make yourself look awesome or feel awesome instead of doing what god wants you to do with it and that's so stupid and not utterly relatable at all today all right um but then there's some weird stories in judges that we don't really talk about at all uh there's this guy named jephthah who uh god or, or so the people are conquered and they say, well, let's go ask Jephthah to rescue us. Turns out Jephthah's this son of a, a prostitute and an Israelite who's been banished because they don't like him, but he's a great warrior. He lives with his, they call him, say, several scoundrels have started to live with him. So I just picture like this group of bandits. I don't know. So he's living off on his own and they come to him like, will you come deliver us? And he's like, why would I come deliver you? You kicked me out. And they're like, well, if you come back, we'll let you be in charge if you win. And he's like, promise? And they say, God's honor, right? And they say, like, oh, okay, I'll come back. So he's going ready, and he seems to be somewhat of a spiritual person, though maybe a misguided spiritual person since he's living, like, as a villain, pretty much. And he says before his big battle, he's like, God, if you give me this victory, I will slaughter whatever comes out of my house when I get back as a burnt offering, which just seems like a really dumb promise to make because then when he wins the battle and he goes home, his daughter comes out of the house, and then it's like, well, now what do we do? Well, what I said I promised to God I would do. Now, admittedly, there's some interpretations there. You could say he actually killed her, or there's some other clues in there that say that maybe he just gave her away as like a nun or something, and she was never married and whatever. So either way you interpret that, though, that's not great, right? Uh, and it doesn't make a lot of sense because it's these very flawed individuals, right, attempting to do what's right, not always doing what is right with their gifts, not always uh, maintaining their dedication to God throughout it, but also finding people that really you're like, why is this person the person that God is delivering his people with? Why are we choosing Jephthah? Like, this is God's plan, but somehow he chooses this interesting fellow, right, to lead the revolt that leads to safety, at least for a time, for Israel. The whole thing comes to a close with the last story in Judges, one that for many years I taught in sixth grade and have stopped teaching because now I'm older and I think I don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole with a bunch of sixth graders, but it's this Levite who has a concubine who is unfaithful to him So because she's been sleeping with some other dude. So she gets, they get upset. They have a fight. She runs back home to her father 
And then the man lets her stay there for a while until the Levite comes back and says, all right, I'm going to bring you back home with me. So he takes the concubine. It's more complicated than this, but he starts taking her back home. We've already got a problem that a Levite has a concubine, which is not supposed to happen. So we have not just any person in Israel, right? But we have like a very devout servant of the tabernacle here who is taking a concubine in spite of God's commands for him. So that probably sets our story already that we know that even the guy who's supposed to be like a representative and enforcer of the law is breaking it. This is where we've gotten to. But also this idea, uh, they get, they're traveling and it's getting late. And he's like, well, we got to stop somewhere. Well, I want to stop somewhere that belongs to Israel. So they finally stop in this town belonging to Benjamin. And no one wants to take them in for the night, which God commanded them to do, right? We talked about that when we talked about the Torah, the idea that when you visit a town, you go sit in the square and someone's supposed to say, ah, come on in with me, right? And instead, no one's offering them a place to stay. At the last minute, an older guy's like, no, you can't stay in the square all night. You've got to come with me. So he takes them in his house. doesn't take long for uh, some of the men of the town to come bang on the door and say, hey, give us the man who's staying in your house so we can have sex with him. We got problems with that in the law, obviously. Then the man who let them in and the Levite, they say, hey, it's all cool. We're going to throw out this man's daughter and my concubine, and you guys just do what you want with them, and we'll be cool. Which, once again, we have some serious problems here, right? I can't get over the fact that this guy is a Levite. Like, in my mind, I'm imagining, like, a more modern version of this story with, like, a preacher. And, like, this would be all over the news, right? This would kill the church, right? And so they throw these two people out there to the horny men, right? And in the morning, the concubine, like, staggers back and, is, and, like, literally dies in the threshold, like, trying to come back in the house. And, he, and the Levite opens the door the next morning, sees his concubine laying on the floor, like, clearly beat and had it a rough night, and just, like, says, steps over her, turns around and says, come on, let's go. And she won't go, and he gets irritated because she's not ready to leave. So then he says, well, I know what to do. I'll take my concubine. I'll cut her up into 12 pieces. I'll mail each piece of my concubine to one of the tribes. That'll get people excited. Then all the people send representatives to him saying, why did you just mail us a piece of a concubine? What is going on? Uh, and he says, well, here's the whole story. And he tells them the story. And then they say, well, obviously we should go to Benjamin, kill the guys who are responsible, and the Lord's will will be set straight. Which, by the way, isn't that just the weirdest thing? Like, this whole thing's set up the way it is, and then it's going to end by doing the will of the Lord. Which is not what we're doing at this point. At this point, it's really more about revenge, right? The act might be righteous, but the motivation most certainly is not. So they go, okay, we'll go to Benjamin. So they go to Benjamin, and they say, give us these men who murdered uh, and, and tortured this concubine. And they say, no. And say, we're not giving them up. That's not fair to them. So they protect the men. So then all the other 12 tribes, the other 11 tribes say, well, fine, we'll just have to go to war with Benjamin. So then we have this civil war between Benjamin and all the other 11 tribes. And they almost completely wipe Benjamin off the map. They only have a few, like 60 or something men left when it's all over. And they say, well, man, now we made a mistake. There's no men except for these 60. There's no women. There's no children. Benjamin's going to be extinct. There's going to be 11 tribes. Now we've really done it. Now God's really going to be mad solution. Here's what we'll do. There's this one town that was supposed to help us fight them. They didn't show up even though they said they would. So we'll go to this town, we'll kill the men in this town, and then there'll be a lot of unmarried women in that town, and those women can become wives for Benjamin, and then Benjamin will repopulate. Solution. And they even set up this whole thing where like they have the Benjamite men like run out of the forest and like literally grab a woman and run off with her so it doesn't look like they let them do it, right? It was an accident. Uh, and this whole story is a little insane, by the way, but where it ends, and this is 
kind of why we went through all this. At the very end, the very last sentence of the story is the one I read to you earlier, Judges 21, 25. And it says, in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did as they saw fit, which clearly is not a good thing, right? Which also is unfortunately, I think, incredibly relatable for us today when Israel has no king and everyone does as they see fit. And even though there may be occasional righteous actions, if the actions are implemented with the wrong motivation and not in the interest of serving the Lord, but in the interest of revenge or some other aspect, it kind of loses its righteousness in that sense. But what's most interesting is I think when we go into the Samuels and Israel starts asking for a king and we say, well, that was dumb. They should have known better. Why do they want a king just because everyone else has it? Because that just happened, right? And they say, we need somebody in charge because this is out of control, right? Maybe that wasn't the right call to want a king. Maybe they say, God, give us another Joshua or give us another Moses, right? Or maybe, I don't know, listen to God and keep the Ark of the Covenant like paraded around all the time to keep everybody focused. But whatever it is that happens, when we get to First and Second Samuel, they immediately start asking for a king. Now there's a judge slash priest slash prophet Samuel for whom the books are named he's kind of in charge at the beginning of first Samuel um, but he rapidly starts to hand it off to other because he's not clearly fitting the bill as much as they want because he's more of the judge mold right he pops up when he's needed helps with a dispute and then goes back away and then people say we need somebody else to keep us on track right so this idea of Israel demanding a king, yeah, it's bad. Yeah, they're definitely motivated by everybody else has one, so we want one, because, you know, it's a human thing. But at the same time, there's a desire from Israel for some sort of order, because Judges is the opposite of that. The book of Judges is this insane disorder, right? Lawlessness, and they say, we need someone who's going to bring order. Maybe some people who are supporting a king want that king to bring them order towards God, keep them on track. Probably not all of them. But that's why they end up saying, okay, we demand a king. I did skip Ruth, but we're also almost out of time. You could read Ruth this afternoon if you wanted to. It's only four chapters. It's a brief story about Ruth. And she stays with her mother-in-law, and she gets married, and it turns out she's in Jesus' lineage. So go look that up. So anyway, First and Second Samuel. So First Samuel, mainly Samuel's in charge at the beginning, but the people demand a king, so he gives them a king. Okay, And God chooses the king through Samuel. So as much as we may say, well, they shouldn't have wanted a king because everybody else wanted a king, God is involved in the process. They don't say, we're going to make a king, and then they pick some big strong guy and say, all right, let's go. They go to Samuel, who's the representative of God, and they say to Samuel, we need a king please inquire of God and get us a king. So Samuel inquires of God and God allows them to have a king. God chooses the king, a man named Saul. Saul's a really tall dude, but he's also not a super famous dude. He's not well known. He's from a little known clan in the little known tribe of Benjamin, right? He's not a big deal, but he is tall, right? Mention that. They say in the Bible, he's a head taller than everybody else. Um, and so he becomes king. And at first it seems like it may be exactly what Israel needed. He leads the way that God wants him to. He inquires of God. He keeps the people focused. It's like that metaphorical ark, right, is back there in the center when Saul is in front and keeping the people in line. But Saul's human. Saul makes mistakes. And when Saul makes his mistake, he offers a sacrifice instead of waiting for Samuel. Long story. Uh, when Saul makes his mistake, he has that option, you know, of kind of course correcting or not course correcting. And he doesn't course correct. Well, we might see from Joshua or Moses be like a course correction back to following. Saul gets upset and he feels abandoned. And then he starts seeing rivalries everywhere. 
with people like David, who then becomes anointed to take over from him instead of Saul's kids, which makes Saul really angry. Saul dies. There's a brief fight between Saul's kids and David about who's going to be king. David ends up being king. We know David. He's kind of a big deal in the Bible. But even then, David um, has his many, many problems, right? Which we do talk about every so often in the sermon or something, right? Um, He has a lot of mistakes. He's a very flawed person. But God can still use that. David course corrects, okay? Even when he does make a mistake, he does repent. He does redirect. So the king period of Israel, and then 2 Samuel basically ends um, with David dying, like he's about to die when 2 Samuel ends. And what happens is it sets us up for, well, what's going to happen next? We've had two kings. One went really poorly and one went fairly well, okay? God is trying to work through these people, but the reactions of those people ends up deciding which way it's going to go. Do they course correct? Do they repent? Do they remain humble? Or does that kingness go to their head and create problems? In some ways, the kings are perfectly positioned to help Israel avoid that mess from judges, where everyone's doing as they see fit. But what becomes the trend is whoever is the king, so goes the people. If you have a king who is righteous, there's some really cool stories about some really cool things that God does through them. But if a king is self-inflated or focused upon himself, or about making Israel look like all of the other countries, it generally doesn't go well, right? Uh, and there's a lot of really fascinating stories in there. Um, but I think kind of as we kind of put that narrative together, and we'll do the second half of the narrative two weeks from now, yeah, two weeks from now, okay, we see a few things. Israelites being terrible, but also being interested in doing better, okay? There's never, at this point yet, a time where we see them totally throw up their hands and say that, I'm done with God, okay? In fact, we see them continually coming back, okay? They get the promised land. They see two-thirds of the promise that was promised to Abraham delivered, and they screw it up royally during the judges period, and they hit bust at the end. But they come back again. We want to do better. We need a king to do better, okay? And they follow the kings for some time, attempting to do better. It takes some time until the end of that cycle that they really, really hit bust for sure. Um, So some of this is animated by that idea to be like everyone else, to want what everyone else has because it seems from the opposite side as better. Now, the people definitely need something other than what's happening in Judges because what's happening in Judges is definitely not working. But that may not be a king, but when they look at other countries, they see kings who don't allow the lawlessness and everyone doing as they see fit that they've experienced in Judges, and that's what they want. Now, perhaps if they had gone to Samuel and said, all this stuff that's going on in Judges is too much. We need to get back on page. We need God to help us. What does God want us to do? Maybe they end up in a different place, right? Maybe God has a different solution for them, but they don't do that because they're focused on what other people are doing. Uh, One more quick story. Yeah, okay. Um, Once a week, I walk over, so Harding Academy, where I work, is right next door to a retirement community called Town Village. It's on the corner of Park and Cherry. So once a week, I take a group of about eight to 10 middle schoolers and we walk over to Town Village for about 25 minutes during homeroom. And we let them loose in the retirement community. And it was really scary at first because they didn't know what to do. They all just clustered around me. They're like, what do we do? 
It's like, go talk to people, and they were very scared. But now they're good at it. So we let them loose, and they just go visit with the citizen, the, the residents, okay? Citizens, the residents of Town Village. They're also citizens, no. Um, and I stand, like, right in the center lobby, because I say, all right, you have until 9.50. I will be here, because there's all these, like, common rooms right around that front lobby. So I just kind of sit there and wait for my kids to come back at 9.50. And I meet really interesting people standing in the lobby waiting for my kids to come back. But before they find the kids, they think I'm the youngest person in the building and they wanna come talk to me and tell me about their lives. And then they spot my kids and they leave me alone and they go talk to them. But anyway, so this past week, I had two kids who didn't come back on time, tisk tisk. So I'm still waiting there for them. I send the rest of the kids back with my other chaperone. And so I'm waiting for these two kids to come back. And as I'm waiting for these two kids to come back from somewhere in this community, right, uh, this older fellow comes up and there's like this center table with some signs on it about things that are happening. I'm just standing next to the table waiting. And he walks up and he looks at the sign on the table, kind of doesn't even look at me, doesn't even acknowledge me, and goes, bingo is canceled. <laughs> Who cares about that? And I'm just standing there. I'm like, okay, this guy's interesting. And he keeps talking like to the sign, like he's ignoring me. We're right next to each other, but like he's not talking to the sign. He's talking to me. Like he's waiting for me to give him something. Yeah, I never saw the draw in bingo. <laughs> I'm a little distracted because I'm worried about my kids now because it's been like two minutes and this is very rare. I'm like, what happened? Did some old person like capture them? Are they going to never come back? I'm going to be in so much trouble. This is a mistake. And so then finally he's like, yeah, I played bingo a few times when I first got here. So finally I buy it. I'm like, all right, dude. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, oh, yeah. Do you like it? No, I don't know why anyone would like bingo. You know, everyone thinks old people like bingo. And I was like, that's true. I had thought that. We don't. It's boring. He's like, you know, I was a caller for bingo a few times and struggled not to fall asleep while I was reading it. They didn't like that when I kept falling asleep when I was supposed to read a number. I was like, really? And I talked to this guy, Joe, for about 10 minutes, which, by the way, was way too long for my kids to have to come back and they're in trouble. But aside from that, I talked to Joe for 10 minutes and he continued to tell me all these really random non sequiturs. But what he was most interested in doing was conveying to me was that I was not, he was not my average old person. There was something unique about Joe that I had not met in all of the other residents. He doesn't like bingo. He's got mad pumpkin stem carving skills. He carves pumpkin stems into people. I haven't seen them yet. He gave me his room number. I'm supposed to see them this week. I'll let you know. Follow up. <laughs> he also paints Easter eggs. And so he said, next time you come back here with your kids, you can, you can bring some of them, and I'll show you what I've made, depending on the season. I'm like, what does he do for Christmas? Like, I want to know. And so I start talking to Joe, and it gets more and more interesting as he keeps giving me all these really random facts about himself that, like, are probably true of no other person on the planet. And then as I was thinking about that story, it kind of stuck with me this week because now I've got my friend Joe that I have been thinking about a lot. It reminded me of what I was preparing for because when we see in the story of the Israelites and when I see in my middle schoolers and when I see in most adults, generally speaking, is our thirst to have what other people have look like what other people look. But there's something about Joe, and I'll put him in a different category. Maybe it's because he's older, maybe it's because he's wider, maybe he's just one weird dude. But what he longs for now towards the end of his life is to be remembered as something distinct, not be one of those other people in the retirement community that we come and meet that tells us some odd fact about his past. He wants us to know that there's something different and unique about him, and he wants you to know it to the point that he will stand there and talk aimlessly to the sign until you acknowledge it. And that's cool. 
Like, what made me think that is, man, I hope that I start to be more like that. Because I know that I get distracted by wanting things other people want and for my family to function like other families function or uh, to own something that someone else owns. Then I thought, man, that's not really exciting at all. Like, I want to be this weird guy right here who people are like, I talk to them and then they say, well, you won't believe what this guy told me. It was so strange, but he is such an interesting fellow, right? And I think that's where we as Christians need to land, okay? If we're going to have a takeaway from this first chunk of the history, right? The Israelites are doomed because of their interest in what other people are doing. That's not unique to them. That's all of us here today, too. But in order to really move past that, we have to find what it is about ourselves as Christians, as humans too, but as Christians, that makes us so special and different and stand out and own that and live it and not be nervous about it or scared of it. Because as much as we think we've left those insecurities in middle school, I'm pretty sure we haven't judged on how we act as Christians. So that's part one. We'll do part two in two weeks. Lots of more gory stories and some really good questions about God and killing people and all that stuff. But that's next week and I'm out of time. So uh, I guess that's it. Trey. Thank you, Scott. A lot of people may not know, but Scott and I spent probably half of our lives living across the street from each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we were in elementary school, we did our own reach groups with our families and other people and so a lot of these so that was scott frizzell teaching on the first part of the historical books hope that you enjoy that lesson scott did a wonderful job and hope that you guys will join us next time on the highland bridge builders podcast again this is david flat hope you have a blessed week